This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and Salut Babette! Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people, upon whose lands we are broadcasting at 3CR in Melbourne, and to the Gadigal people, where we will be heard at Radio Skid Row in Sydney. The school strikers who are calling us all out to lift up our voices on Friday, September the 25th, have as their first demand that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders should be paid and equipped to care for country and to have a guarantee of land rights. Now, Beyond Zero Emissions is an organisation devoted to researching the solutions to the climate crisis and we acknowledge that Indigenous people are on the front lines of that crisis. In a recent interview, Greta Thunberg talked about her trip sailing to America I think she felt a new relationship with nature out there on the ocean. And that is what all the Aboriginal speakers we've talked to in the last, say, 18 months have told us. We need a new relationship with nature. So here's Greta. You realize how much I don't know, how much we we don't know. I mean, when you're out there, you're just completely at at the mercy of nature, and you have to act accordingly. So it just really puts things into a different perspective. And when you're out there, you also have to completely trust the scientific data, the weather models, and um, the meteorologists that send weather updates, you just have to have to trust that you you don't take any unnecessary risks, you don't act irresponsibly, and you don't. I mean, you wouldn't come to think of like if you get cold, you, you would not you would not light a fire on deck because you are cold, and it feels like we are right now humanity. We are a civilization in the middle of the ocean, and we are right now. Uh, setting fire to the boat because we have nowhere nowhere left to turn to. Right now, governments around the world are relaunching their economies with post-COVID stimulus to business. Our government says it's leading with gas. So we'll talk to Mark Ogue from the Australian Institute later in the show about why gas will not lead to jobs or the sort of climate-saving recovery we need. But first, here's Professor Andrew Blakers from ANU talking to Fran Kelly on ABC Radio National. He says the leakage from gas extraction makes it as offensive to the climate as coal and that replacing the Liddell power plant with a 1,000 megawatts of gas is a toy compared to the thousands of megawatts now and increasingly produced by wind and solar. I thought I'd include Professor Blakers because it's the most recent comment from him and the budget is coming up in October and we need citizens to really tell the government an alternative to the plan they've got at the moment. 
All right. You've had a look at how to reach net zero by 2050, net zero emissions by 2050. That's the ultimate end goal of the Paris Agreement. What has to happen to gas for us to meet that goal? Gas has to go to zero. Uh, it's going to go to zero anyway because renewables are undercutting gas all over the country and that will become ever more obvious as the price of renewables continues to fall during the 2020s. Well, well, I was speaking to the Minister about that. He's saying at the moment we need gas for our manufacturing process and that um, we need, he was talking about um, the gas-fired power plant they're talking about building in the Hunter um, and the need to pump out, you know, reliable, dispatchable power 365 days a year. And when I said that you can get the same, you know, same... capacity of dispatchable power more cheaply through solar and wind. He said that wasn't true because gas prices are coming down. How do they compare from the research you've done? Well, there's a number of ways you can make um, variable wind and solar fully uh, dispatchable, and that includes having lots of wind and solar in lots of different places. So if the weather's good here and bad over there, you can send power over there. Another way is batteries, and then there's pumped hydro, such as Snow 2.0, and a very rapidly rising form of uh, stabilisation is, of course, demand management, where you simply switch loads on and off if you have a shortfall. This is all completely off the shelf and really quite straightforward. A 1,000 megawatt gas power station in the Hunter Valley is mm-hmm. more or less a toy compared with what's happening with renewables. Australia in terms installing- of volume of energy produced, you mean? Yeah, Australia is installing 6,500 megawatts of wind and solar each year. So another thousand megawatts of gas, which won't be which won't be operating, be operating most of the time, is neither here nor there. But it's very clear which the, what the direction is, and that is ever cheaper renewables and eventually undercutting of gas, even for high temperature heating. Andrew Blakers, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Andrew Blakers is Professor of Engineering at ANU. Admittedly, I think we're oppressed by the Carbon Club here and Quarry Vision. But I'd like to give you some headlines around the world to show you what other countries are doing to recover from COVID, spend, you know, a lot of money, public money on on stimulating their economy, but making it a bold climate action. First of all, France. They're going to spend 100 billion euros investing in the most innovative sectors. 36 billion will be invested in skills needed for the future. Digital inclusion which I think COVID has shown us all, you know, some people don't have the the good internet connections and they're completely left behind. And that's what the French government is promoting and safeguarding employment. They've also got a green component of that, which is 30 billion for the green transition. I saw it on TV, a massive rollout of thermal retrofits to buildings. And most of that was for social housing, just as Beyond Zero Emissions has uh, promoted in their One Million Jobs Plan. There's a rollout for buildings, but also factories are being urged to reduce their carbon in, the in carbon intensity of their manufacturing and the workers are being retrained. So that's France. Over in New Zealand, they are expanding the Warmer Kiwi Homes program to low-income households. Over in the UK, they have put £2 billion aside for the Green Homes Grants. You get a voucher to cover up to two-thirds of the costs of eco-friendly boilers, heat pumps, double or triple glazing, and poorer households can get 100% of the costs. Individual vouchers 
for people who can afford the the renovation is up to five thousand pounds, and for poorer households, they get can get up to ten thousand pounds to cover one hundred percent of the costs of retrofitting their house. Applications open in September, so we can see there in France, New Zealand, UK. Plenty of incentives. In Italy, you get an eco bonus tax deduction of 110% for installing energy efficient retrofits. So these are all on the trend that Beyond Zero Emissions is promoting. And um, I, I, I hope we can, if we're contacting MPs or phoning them on the 25th of September, you know, a lot of you listening will be able to give arguments and put put or put these ideas on paper to your members of parliament to not spend the budget on gas and backward-looking in infrastructure, but for the the future that we need. Meanwhile, other major economies, according to Vivid Economics, are spending public money to stimulate their economies in ways that are potentially very damaging for the climate. For example, globally, airline bailouts have totaled $37 billion, with no climate strings attached. Some governments are giving tax relief to oil firms or making moves to relax environmental rules in the name of stimulus. So now is the time to give our government some new ideas about a Green New Deal for all of us. Investing in housing retrofits would be the one that BZE leads with. They will cut emissions, cut bills and they provide jobs. To find out more, I spoke to one of the school strikers in Sydney. Her name is Daisy Millpark, and then I got a union perspective from Penny Howard at the MUA, and lastly we'll hear from Mark Ogue at the Australia Institute talking about their paper, Gas Fired, Backfire. Now we have Daisy Millpark from School Strike for Climate. Daisy, what year are you in at school? Hi Vivian, yeah, I'm in Year 9. Year 9. Well, thank you for talking to us. It's a Saturday and Daisy has taken time to talk to us about the big strike that's coming up and I'd like to welcome her to the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. Daisy, we report on climate action as it takes place in the community and I'd like you to tell us first about the headline of your strike in September called Fund Our Future, Not Gas. That's pretty specific. Tell us about that. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks for having me, Vivian. Um, yeah, so the theme of our event this year is Fund Our Future, Not Gas. It has a few different meanings. We've got a lot of young people looking for jobs in the renewable and green energy sectors at the moment, but the government is refusing to fund this industry and is instead dishing billions of dollars to their mates in the gas and coal industries. Obviously, this is very economically irresponsible because not only are they refusing to make our economy great but they're also funding gas which isn't economically viable it's not a transition fuel and it's not a clean fuel it's it's not great for our environment you know as well as for calling for this focus on jobs we're also asking for the government to stop funding gas because as we know gas is an incredibly dangerous fuel climate change isn't a trend and it can't be treated as such it's not a light topic, you know. So as well as destroying our precious environment, which is an issue in and of itself, gas is also taking our lives, which we all need to be scared about. We saw it take the lives of so many Australians in the summer. We saw lives lost in the floods a few years ago. And we're seeing lives lost to air pollution, not to mention the hundreds of First Nations lives that have been lost due to a lack of connection to culture and country. It's absolutely ridiculous that the government is purposely funding a crisis that's literally killing us. Um, it's wrong, it's unethical, 
and it's completely lacking in basic human empathy. So I guess on this day, September 25th, we're really calling for the government to fund our future in ways that prevent the horrific events that we see every day as a result of climate change. This means not taking the recommendations of the untrustworthy COVID-19 Commission and instead putting money into sectors that will save our environment, our lives and our land. And you can support us in this in a few ways. You can host your own event, which is really great. You can turn up to our um, national online live stream. Um, you can follow us on all our social medias. Um, visit our website, schoolstrikeforclimate.com. All those things are really going to help build this momentum. Yes, well, when you mentioned First Nations people, I remembered the faces of the people who came all the way from Beetaloo Basin in the Northern Territory to Sydney Town Hall last year. And I think they went to Melbourne Town Hall as well. They came a huge distance and they sang and uh, I reported on that to the radio and I was so moved by them because they'd come from so far away to tell us about their country. It's remote and, you know, they stand to really lose a lot if we start fracking for gas up there. And getting gas from there so far away is really on the cards a big government investment now in gas or pipelines out of there would be ruinous for their health as well as the great artesian basin's water and the climate. So I think it's marvellous that students have been in contact with First Nations people and with unionists to make this real for us because real people are being affected by this right now. So how have you been um, on a sort of learning curve and how have you found out all about this? I'd like to know how First Nations people feel about this and how unionists feel about it. Yeah, definitely. I think I've heard about it in a few different ways. First of all, just my direct experiences. I spent a, a, a fair bit of my life in um, rural and regional Australia and I feel a very deep connection to the land. And I think seeing it burn in those summer bushfires was really it was it was it, it brought me to life a bit i felt incredibly vulnerable and i felt cr incredibly sad and hurt and um in pain for the land and the culture that we'd lost and so i think that's one element of it and then the other element um was you know hearing about the experiences that first nations people and uh, people from unions have had so um i've been speaking to a lot of um first nations um people lately and it's really you know, it's really confronting to hear the ways that they've suffered, you know, people people literally losing their lives due to a lack of access to um, water and crops. And that is due to climate change because climate change is taking our water, it's taking our resources, you know, um, these things cost life. So I think in those ways, it's really awakened me. And then in terms of unions, workers are on the front lines in this, you know, for example, nurses, with the um, the nurses union has recently um, endorsed us, which is really great. But um, nurses are seeing heaps and heaps and heaps of more cases um, coming into their hospitals in the summer due to the air, the smoke, you know. Um, we're, we're literally seeing medical issues arising from this. And so with the unions, we can really use their experiences um, to provide fact about this. Um, you see people working in the mines experiencing this, you see um, farmers experiencing this, you see nurses experiencing this, you see teachers experiencing this. 
all these people have come from different walks of life with different motivations and different experiences and they all see the same thing that funding gas funding fossil fuels and refusing to fund renewable energy is leading australia into an economic environmental and social crisis well, I'm really impressed by your knowledge, Daisy, because when I was in year nine, I don't think I was meeting up with the nurses' union or anything like that. I was just stuck to the curriculum and stuck in school. And I love this because I think you're getting such an education now. It's a real education. And you're giving it back to us, the older people, who also get a bit stuck in their ways. And you're opening it all up. It's really a friendly process too and you're making relationships with all different sectors of society because we are all in this together. I'd like you to finish by telling us again about September the 25th. You know, people will be listening in Melbourne and Sydney but the podcast will be available all over Australia. And because of COVID, we can't have a big rally like the one last year in the Domain in Sydney where, you know, I think Montaigne sang and there were really about 100,000 people, including people from the Pacific Islands. But now with COVID, we can't do that. So how are you using a different sort of creativity to get attention from the government? You know, government people, two weeks after this strike, will be putting out the COVID recovery budget. And you want them to fund your future, not gas. How will this strike be different, do you think? And how will it grab the attention of the people in power? Yeah, definitely. I think COVID-19 has been really challenging to activists because as well as losing that protest feel, it's also been a massive loss of community to us. Um, we don't, we no longer get to see each other. And being an activist is incredibly draining. So it's important that we still have those connections. And I joined School Strike and it was like, I finally felt like I was doing stuff and I still have anxiety about the planet and I still like feel sad or angry about it. But I feel like by channeling all that into this movement, it's really like, it's, it's so, it's so rewarding. Like I, you know, with the Samsung action that we had in Sydney and um, we got Samsung to stop funding the Adani mine, like that was really amazing. And it felt so rewarding. So I think, yeah, Definitely, it can be really draining, but when you when you make change, it's so rewarding and it's like everything that you've been working for has finally happened, yeah. So I, um, for, for this um, September 25 event, we're really focusing on community and um, having lots and lots and lots of actions so that we can still show that presence and still show the government that we are here and we're not backing down. So um, some groups are doing like community activist art, which is really incredible. Some are displaying, you know, posters from past events and that's what they're doing in Canberra. And then as well as that, we're having an overarching national online rally. And on that rally, we're going to be doing heaps of action-based stuff. Um, so stuff like, you know, calling MPs offices, emailing, phone jams. And this stuff is let the government know that we're still here because we can't shut down the city because it's unsafe but we can show them we're here in ways um, that they're not going to expect you know they don't expect hundreds of thousands of students to put down their work and go and fight for this but that's what we're doing because we care so much so you know and we're also doing amazing things like working with theatre groups and musicians and it's been really rewarding so I think that um to support us you can register your own event 
event at our website, schoolstrikeforclimate.com. Um, you can RSVP to our online rally, which will be popping up on our website. Um, and then you can attend an event if you can in your local area, if it's COVID safe, of course. So that was Daisy Millpark from School Strike for Climate. Remember the date, listeners. It's Friday, September the 25th. I hope you can participate wherever you are. I'd like to read to you now the demands on their website. If you go to the school strike, number four, climate, you'll find a lot of information about how to take action. But their main demands are that there should be no public funds for gas or other damaging fossil fuel projects and the COVID recovery funds. And it could be billions spent on this, you know, in the next budget. These should be for one resourcing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-led solutions like we've heard about, you know, the cultural burning, which is a year-round job to maintain forests in a different way, not such a way that leaves a lot of uh, problems for future drought and bushfire-prone territory. Number two, creating jobs that fast-track solutions to the climate crisis and help communities to recover. And three, that the funding should go to projects that transition our economy to 100% renewable energies through expanded public ownership. And we'll talk about some of those issues during this program. But please go to their website and please keep 25th of September free for action. I, I guess I'm frustrated Thinking about all the places I should have been by now and I'm endlessly waiting Feel like the barrel of dynamite waiting for flame to come round
G'day, you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe. And of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. Dr Penny Howard is a research officer with the Maritime Union of Australia. She's been a key person in getting climate consciousness to flourish in the union movement. So welcome, Penny, to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you. Penny, the school students want COVID recovery dollars spent on making the transition to renewable energy and expanding public ownership. What sort of unions are getting behind this? Um, Well, the Maritime Union has endorsed it um, nationally, as has uh, the United Workers Union and the Health Services Union. And I know there's um, been endorsements from um, the New South Wales nurses and midwives and New South Wales teachers, uh, the rail, tram and bus union in um, in Victoria. And I'm sure there's I'm sure there's others um, as well who are in the process of having those discussions and getting on board. And of course, there was a really long list of unions who endorsed the previous um, school strike for climate events. I think it's probably uh, both students and unions have just found it a bit challenging this time round just because there is such enormous pressure on um on workers and on uh, people representing workers. Yes, that's right. They've told me they're going to do about 120 actions around the country, very creative ones, you know, because we can't have the mass rally at the moment. Look, I read that you started out in Canada as a student activist against globalisation. And I'm wondering whether the pandemic is forcing us into more localised manufacturing and less travel and what's your thinking now about the impact of globalisation on climate change? At the time and that was part of that big um, anti-corporate globalisation movement where uh, we had big demonstrations at um, World Economic Forum meetings at uh, Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation meetings at World Bank and IMF meetings and what we were criticizing was not so much a lack the fact of global connection uh, but the fact that that was being organized in the interests of corporations and in the interests of profit and in a way that extracted value and resources from people um, in many parts many parts of the world um, and concentrated that wealth with people who already had so much wealth and and power. So we are, you're right, we are in a very different political circumstance in the moment with with borders closing. You know, just today there was an announcement from the government about investment in um, local refinery capacity, uh, which is really the opposite way that uh, governments have allowed things to go for the past few decades. But I don't think that we should confuse that with all of a sudden um, corporations or mainstream governments all of a sudden being interested in promoting people's 
well-being and the planet's well-being they're still um, they're still mainly acting uh, you know in the interests of big corporations and mainly also standing in the way of the transition that we need both reducing emissions but also ensuring that workers and communities get the support that they need in that process to ensure that it's a just transition. I always like to include a history question, you know, so sort of take us back to historic context. And when I was thinking about you with the MUA, I thought, oh, look, I the thing that stuck, stuck out for me about maritime strikes and efforts was back in 1945 when uh, they black banned the Dutch ships that were in Australian ports and about to take military personnel and weapons back to or what became Indonesia, which was their Dutch colony at the time. And, and the maritime workers and then other workers really just black banned that. And it really must have put a bit of a, a blockage in the, their efforts. And then the Australian government rep, um, recognised Indonesia as an independent country. So that's 1945. And I wonder what historical sort of examples like that of unions getting together, especially internationally, to fight back against something what what kind of examples inspire you because a lot of students will be listening to this and i think they might like to know what the history is you know it's mm. always been a struggle so well that's one great um example and i think the things that examples like that show us is that in this transition it's not just a matter of looking at at workers as people who are going to be victims during a transition but actually the fact that we need workers power um, and the fact that in capitalism you know you know all employers rely on the labor of their workforce to make money we're going to need that power and those resources and all of those people on side if we're actually going to be able to achieve a successful transition so a more recent example that people might have heard of was of course um, the union um, both domestic and international cooperation uh, that ended the racist uh, apartheid regime in um, in South Africa. That was really important. The maritime union played a big role. Many unions all around the world played a big role, actually stopped the importation of, um, of oil to the racist regime in South Africa. And um, Nelson Mandela personally thanked uh, many union leaders from around the world and the pressure they were able to exert. But that was, of course, done in conjunction with incredible courage and bravery by people living in South Africa that was also led in a significant part by um, by South African unions and, and workers as well who were also going on strike. So it took everybody combined um, working together to achieve that and they did they did achieve an extraordinary transition of that government and we need to we need to replicate that on a global basis. Yes, because I see maritime workers as very connected. You know, they're on ships, a lot of them, and they are connected with other parts of the world. So I think their unions are very much in touch with the trends. That's why I'm interested in talking to you. Another interesting oh, yeah. point of connection with maritime workers is particularly for, for wharfies or dock workers in ports. The equipment that's used in ports and the way that ports are laid out now is almost identical no matter what country or continent you're in so you can have workers um, who may you know speak arabic french english grow up in completely different cultures food languages countries but they all operate actually identical machines and can have you know a great laugh and discussion together about 
the challenges um, of the kind of work that they do and the kind of achievements that they can make when they, you know, actually do work together to put uh, pressure on their employer to improve their conditions. Because of course, all these employers start out and might set up an operation in a country that might not have a lot of labor law and, you know, set up something with terrible exploitation. But, you know, by and large, workers do or find a way to organize to improve those conditions because they do have a huge amount of power um, in ports that they work in. The Maritime Union has a lot of members also employed on um, ships and in ports that pump out lots of emissions and they also transport coal and gas and oil and they service those offshore oil rigs. I've spoken to one of your members about that. And I want, how come you're on the front foot about the need to lower emissions? You would think a union with so many workers involved in, you know, dealing with fossil fuels would want to drag the chain a bit. But why are you on the front foot? It's because um, we represent we represent our our members and their skills and their you know long term interests. And we started having this discussion. Um, in quite a serious way about a year and a half ago. And we did a lot of work in the lead up to that, looking at, you know, what are the future energy options in Australia, having the discussions with the school climate strikers and other environmental organisations. And we took the policies of what we had done um, to the union's national conference in March, where they were unanimously endorsed by 500 members, leading delegates from workplaces all over the country, coal export ports, offshore oil platforms and supply vessels, um, gas, um, offshore gas installations. Um, And they were really proud. That was one thing that got, they were really proud that their union was thinking ahead about what were the jobs that we were going to need in the future, what was the work that needs to be done to reduce emissions, and also proud that they could look their kids in the eye and say, I'm supporting you going on strike, and this is how myself and my union are going to um, support this union, uh, support your your movement as well. So it was really it was really positive. That said, the other reason that we engage in the climate movement is because we think it's incredibly important for the climate movement to understand the reality that workers face and the critical importance of ensuring that these future jobs are not just jobs, um, but they're quality jobs, they're union jobs, they're well represented jobs, um, and um, that we really need people to understand that and to support that, or there will be, um, there will be a backlash, and we won't, uh, we won't be able to get the kinds of emissions reductions we need. Yeah, well, I've loved it. I've come to some of your meetings, those original meetings, and just to see fourteen-year-old school students there of an evening meeting. Everyone's tired, and there they are listening and getting an education that I never got when I was fourteen. I think that's terrific, and you—they've opened a door through you, which is terrific. But look, we've talked about those offshore uh, wind farms with someone else. You know, we, we covered that, but I've just been thinking about these ships you know the great ships that go around the world and since all the cruise ships have been you know just put in mothballs for the moment I've just realized the emissions that they have are huge and I wonder if zero emissions shipping is a real possibility and would that be something that the government recovery spending could be spent on you know I think it's on our run on hydrogen green hydrogen is that a real possibility yeah, it is. And the International Maritime Organization, which is a UN agency, does have an emissions reduction target. It's a pretty 
lame target. They say they need to reduce emissions from global shipping by 50% by 50-50. Um, so it's not the kind of target um, that we would agree with. But nevertheless, they say that in order to achieve that target, we're going to have to have this decade um, start the operation and testing of zero emissions global carbon ships so that they can seriously start operating by 2030. So those would be ships where the main engine would be running on um, ammonia uh, or hydrogen. Ammonia is just another way of carrying, um, of carrying hydrogen as well and operating um, globally at, at an enormous scale. So that is something that the Australian government should definitely be looking into. Um, they should be investing in that and they should be developing um, those kinds of technologies so that we actually have the capacity um, and the skills um, to operate and run those ships in uh, in Australia as well instead of just you know ordering them in from elsewhere. So the ships exist already? Um, there's okay. a few being there's a few being tested um, I think more on a smaller scale like um, ferry boats, tugboats, I think there's a small tanker in development. So it's definitely, it's definitely in the works, but it's not been rolled out yet at a full, at a full commercial scale. And we don't have any vessels operating with those fuels as yet in Australia. It's mainly um, in, in, Europe, uh, in Europe and Japan. Okay. Well, look, the students want the um, October budget to fund our future, not gas. And I'm, um, interested they've been so specific they've obviously been consulting lots of people not gas what needs to be done to counteract the powerful carbon club who says that the recovery should be led by gas well i mean this is the perennial question of the climate and environment movement which is how do we build the power that we need to win and i think what time has told us is that we can't just be morally correct and assume that that means we can win the argument if we've got the correct information and the you know the right morality we actually need to organize and we need to build power so right now there's a plethora of jobs plans and recovery plans that have all been coming out there's actually not too many of those that talk about what's the quality of the jobs we are talking about how are we going to ensure that there's good jobs and that's matched with a bad history that workers are right to be suspicious of right so there was tony abbott's green army where workers were paid less less than the minimum wage all kinds of terrible stories about workers compensation and that kind of a thing the actu have put out a national economic reconstruction plan that's got you know the need for transition um, embedded right into the middle of it so that's good that's something that the whole union movement played part in developing and will play a part in pushing in pushing that along further. So that goes to both the question of what's the new infrastructure that we need to build, but also the question of actually bolstering all of those zero carbon jobs, which are in healthcare, in education, in early childhood education, um, in aged care. And there's a real need actually to improve those services, improve wages, and conditions across those services as well yeah. and by doing that that's another step that we can take towards actually you know reducing the emissions from
from our economy and shifting to an economy that actually take, takes care um, of people instead of, you know, damaging them and um, exploiting them, as is, as is the unfortunate current model of, um, of capitalism that we're living in right now. Would you like to say a, like a small message to the students who've organised this big thing on 25th of September? What's your message to yeah, them? Yeah, well... Definitely, it's wonderful that you're that you're still organizing. It's challenging times organizing in a pandemic, but we've got to do it. We've got to keep organizing, got to keep finding ways to do that. And every everything that every action that we take is another step in that right direction. Certainly, you know, working people are behind you, um, and really appreciate the fact that students have also taken up the question of just transition, the importance of future jobs and actually embedded that right into their action, which they're, you know, calling on the creation um, of quality jobs, of investment in public renewable energy, alongside the need to reduce emissions and have climate justice as well. So we've been talking to Dr Penny Howard from the Maritime Union of Australia, and she's in Sydney. Thanks, Penny. Great. Thanks very much. You're listening to Radio 3CR. I'm Ian Angus, longtime community radio broadcaster in Canada and uh, editor of the website climateandcapitalism.com. The school strike for climate on Friday, September 25th has very specific demands. One of them is fund our future, not gas. And I was surprised at this featuring of gas, so I thought I'd find out why gas is such a poor investment of COVID recovery funds. So I got Mark Oag on the line because he wrote an, um, a report for the Australia Institute with Thomas Swan called Gas Fired Backfire. Welcome, Mark. Tell us how you are, where you are. I'm good, thanks, Vivian. I'd, I'd rather not be, uh, not be in lockdown. I wish this virus had finished, but given the circumstances, I'm going pretty well. I think the last time I spoke to you, you were just surviving the bushfires. Uh, so it's been one thing after another, hasn't that's it? That's right. That's right. Let's hope we don't get that again this year. Right now, the federal government is deciding how to spend billions of dollars in public money. Why do you think they will invest it in new gas projects? Well, the, the gas industry spends, you know, millions and millions of dollars on PR every year and, and on lobbying politicians. So they're incredibly influential. And for some reason, the you know the government has chosen a whole bunch of gas executives, including you know someone on the board of a of the Saudi Arabian um, oil and huge oil state-owned oil and gas company. And you know the government has chosen a, a commission that that has a disproportionate represent, representation from um, gas industry executives. And unsurprisingly, they're suggesting that taxpayers' money goes to subsidise the gas industry. Things are very different overseas. I've been watching the French TV in the morning and I saw their recovery project, COVID recovery, and it was straight out with subheadings like manufacturing, retraining, jobs, Green New Deal. It was all of that. And the assumption was that, of course, we're going to use this opportunity to fast forward our plans to rejig our economy and our, our industry. So I wonder why that assumption is not yet really live in Australia. You know, this is a hard battle. You've published this report, but I think it must be still quite hard to argue this to people who are, you know, holding the purse strings of these billions of dollars that they're going to now spend on COVID recovery. One of the key arguments is, as I just said, jobs, you know, 
subsidising the gas industry will create very, very few jobs. Subsidising any other industry besides the gas industry would get you a much better outcome with jobs. So it fails on the very basic criteria. Um, on top of that, what it does is locks Australian businesses and industry and households into higher energy prices in the medium to long term. And that's because gas is a very expensive fuel. The, the price fluctuates, it's very volatile. As the economy recovers, the gas price would go up again a lot. Um, and so it's an expensive fuel. And renewable energy is already, even with the cost of storage attached, is already considerably cheaper than electricity from gas. And the other way, the other ways that we use gas are for households and, and, and in businesses for heating and heating hot water and, and electrical systems are far cheaper already than, than gas. So if you lock yourself into gas, you're locking yourself into high bills for heating, um, heating your houses and businesses and your hot water. And then finally, a lot of gas is used in industry. Gas is a more expensive way of producing heat for industry. So if we actually spent the money, instead of subsidising gas, we spent the money electrifying industry so that businesses could get off gas, then industry would be saved huge amounts of money every year uh, from now on. So we could lock in huge savings for industry as well. There was an interesting graph in your report, um, gas-fired backfire, and I thought it was interesting that types of industries that are jobs intensive if if we genuinely are trying to lead creating jobs Naomi Klein said care jobs are low carbon jobs and on your graph there are a lot of jobs that now to me are heroes people who've turned out to be frontline workers you know care jobs they are uh, low carbon so how could you just paint us a picture of where you'd spend the money you know you have billions to spend on COVID recovery where would you spend it on jobs to help communities recover and help with something of the sort of relocalization of things and manufacturing onshore for example the COVID recovery is um, is a huge opportunity to reshape the Australian economy in a way that really sets us up for the future. And there's there's a lot of areas that we could spend money. One is that we've been, as you mentioned, we've been running down our, our services for many, many years. So in terms of we could spend more money on um, health and education and social services and, uh, and bolster them. And a relatively small amount of money would provide a lot of jobs, you know, aged care, hospitals, um, schools and community services. So that would provide uh, many, many jobs. We could also invest in social housing, really uh, high output of jobs. So you build you build social housing for people, um, you solve the problem of homelessness and bring down rent for a lot of people in, who, who are going through difficulties, particularly during the um, during COVID, and at the same time, you create a lot of jobs for tradespeople and builders, which is which is great as well. On top of that, we can start investing in Australian industries to fuel switch. If, if you electrify these industrial processes, then those businesses will save money every year from here on. It would be huge savings. So it's a huge opportunity for COVID spending to actually assist them to buy that new plant and equipment to enable them to use electricity to provide the heat, heat they need. And then you're 
saving the environment because we don't have to burn gas. This can be run off renewable energy and you're saving those industries um, huge costs uh, every year out into the future. So there's fantastic opportunities there, but there's also massive opportunities in things like revegetation programs to help us to uh, repair some of the damage that we've done to the environment and that the fires have done. We can start, we can start um, building resilience so that we're better protected against bushfires and floods and, and a whole range of natural disasters that have been brought about by climate change. And of course, we can invest in renewable energy which provides uh, many more jobs than, than coal and gas generate electricity. Well, you've convinced me, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm open to this, but how about an angle that I think would go with the non-committed? People aren't too much worried about climate change, but they might be worried about corruption and tax avoidance. And there's one section in your report that really shocked me because you gave the I can't really understand how the oil and gas companies that earn billions from selling Australian gas pay so little tax. And I, I'd like to know, why should we be, on top of not getting any tax from them, subsidising them to pump out more? How does that work? How do they get away with that? People often refer to the Australian oil and gas industry. There is, there's not very, really an Australian oil and gas industry. It, it's almost entirely big global multinational companies who we allow in Australia to extract gas from from Australia and then ship it overseas. These companies uh, are, are global companies, so they're able to shift profits and expenses around between, between various parts of the company around the world and minimise the amount of tax they pay. And there's also things like depreciation that all businesses are entitled to. There's been very well documented cases basically of um, that these big companies shifting profits uh, offshore and using you know really creative methods to avoid paying tax in Australia. Uh, but the end result is that most of the big companies, most of these big multinational companies operating in Australia pay no tax at all uh, or if they do, very little. So essentially we're, you know, we're kind of giving the resource away for free. Hell, I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now solar, wind power, hydropower and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. Other countries are moving towards Green New Deals and they'll be putting tariffs on carbon-intensive products. And the EU, South, South Korea, even the USA, if uh, Biden comes in, he's promising a Green New Deal as well there will be legal and economic consequences for us. And I wonder, do you ha have any thoughts about that? What could be if that, all those things, all those dominoes started to fall quite suddenly and we had Green New Deals around the world, how could that have economic and legal com um, implications for us? Uh, look, I'm not really sure about the legal side of it, so that's not really my ex area of expertise, but... Um, countries around the world can choose to put an extra tax on Australian exports. So if we have really carbon intensive 
uh, exports, then they can put a tax on on those, which would have to be absorbed by by the company. It'll be this crazy situation where rather than Australia actually getting tax off these companies, the Europeans will, and uh, they'll pump that into their economy to modernise the economy and um, put in more renewable energy and, and do all the things that uh, we, were, we would do if we really wanted to set ourselves up for the future. Beyond zero emissions vision that we always had, just the stationary energy and then all the transport and other parts of society, electrified, low low carbon, re, you know, 100% renewables and then be, beyond zero. What's your vision, you know, just in summary from this um, thought of the billions of dollars going into COVID recovery, how could it be? Beyond zero emissions is so important because, uh, because um, you have a, a really um, cogent, uh, well-researched pathway for every sector of the Australian economy to decarbonise. And that's the direction that the world's going in. And Beyond Zero Emissions is actually um, a leader in laying out that vision, not just in Australia, but globally. So I think, um, uh, in as you say, all around the world, the Green New Deals are, are popping up everywhere. It's, um, you know, it's, it's definitely going to happen. The question is whether it happens quick enough to save the climate, but it's definitely going in that direction and BZE has really been um, be, has really been in, in, very important in uh, you know putting putting the the vision out there so I think um, and, and you know it's a it's a vision that absolutely can and should go ahead because all of these all of these things are actually it, it doesn't really cost us money we're investing in the future and we will actually um, you know, save money in the future through cheaper electricity, cheaper, cheaper energy bills, uh, less health impacts, uh, a much healthier, healthier climate, more comfortable houses, uh, better transport system. You know, lower fuel bills. There, there are so many great co-benefits from what BZE has is proposing now and has been proposing all of these years that. Um, there's really no downside except to the fossil fuel industry. And sadly, the fossil fuel industry has a stranglehold on our kind of political elite. Um, and, uh, and that's the absolute tragedy of the situation. But, but the, only, the only way to overcome that is through people actually getting out there and making their views known. If you send a letter, like a handwritten letter or a, you know, an individual letter to your local representative, they really take notice of that because if one person writes a letter, um, you know, they can pretty safely assume that a thousand people think the same way. So, um, so the actions that you take like that or just getting involved with Beyond Zero Emissions or other organisations to help get that vision out there are really really important a relatively small amount of people can make um can make really big change and uh we've seen that for really good things but we've also seen that with climate skeptics for instance who are a very small group of people who have um who have uh, held us back for you know decades on this stuff
Okay, thank you, Mark. It's lovely to talk to you again. You too, Vivian. Uh, we've been talking to Mark Oak from the Australia Institute. And if you'd like to read his paper that he wrote with Tom Swan, it's called Gas Fired, Backfire. Just go to the Australia Institute website. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Thanks to our guests tonight, Daisy Mill Park from School Strike for Climate, Penny Howard from the MUA, Mark Oag from the Australia Institute. Thanks also to Radio National and CBS for the extracts from their interviews with Professor Blakers and Greta Thunberg. Thank you to our team, Andy on Podcasts, and Kurt and James for the last two whole shows, which gave me a break and which were full of interest. Please check out our podcasts to keep you engaged during the lockdown. I'd also like to thank Michaela, Leanne, Bill and Maddie for the tech help and support they've been giving us. I meant to preserve the illusion that it's all easy and effortless on air, but really the frustrations I've experienced are huge. And their solidarity has kept us all going and I hope if you can, you might send them some money, like send money to 3CR. We didn't do really do Radiothon this year and I'm sure they need continued subscriptions or donations. The songs you heard tonight were Ready to Go by Montaigne. She sang at the last big students' climate strike to a crowd of 100,000. And there's also a new song by David Rovix called The Flames of History. David Rovix is living in Oregon where the bushfires are causing terror and his song really captures that awful feeling that Australians will know very well of just having everything packed and ready to go, not knowing what's happening next. So our sympathy to those people there and everywhere else where climate change is actually impacting people's lives. We must turn the tide on this. We must do something about it. So we'll finish with an action message from Climate for Change. They've made a little sting. And please keep Friday, September the 25th, free for climate action. That's the big day. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. Hello, everyone. I'm Julian. And I'm Chris, and we're from Climate for Change. And we've got actions you can take right now. So this week we've been focusing on the gas-fired economic recovery and the controversial narrow-bribe gas project. This has been backed by the New South Wales and federal governments. The New South Wales Independent Planning Commission is currently reviewing the project and has concluded its public hearings with the decision of approval to be made by September 30th. If approved, it will be then passed on for a final federal decision under the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. Climate for Change's Members of Parliament Engagement Group, or MPEG team, has got you covered with a bunch of up-to-date resources on how to reach out and successfully engage with your MP on topics like this and many more. If you want to get involved in connecting to your MP and meet like-minded people, join our next engagement meeting via Zoom on Tuesday the 29th of September. Check out climateforchange.org.au or like our Facebook page for more information. Thanks, Chris. Such an important time to be engaging with your MPs. And it feels like we are right now humanity. We are a civilization in the middle of the ocean and we are right now uh, setting fire to the boat because we have nowhere, nowhere left to turn to.